Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. Hey, Matt. Craig Perry, great to be back with you. Uh, I'm the chairman of Inventor Capital, uh, founder of NextGen and ISO Energy, of course, chairman of Skeena Resources. Uh, I'm the chairman and co-founder of Wiesla Silver and Wiesla Copper. Uh, and uh, we, uh, we, we're also on the board of Surge Copper. Uh, we have Outback Goldfields, Goldball, uh, and I'm the chairman of both of those companies. And we've got a number of other companies that we're, we're coming to the market with, three actually over the next two months. So we're, we're a bit busy here. Yeah, you, you are a bit busy here. But why aren't you um, on the road with your folks down at like, you know, Beaver Creek or, you know, up in Denver, Colorado? Aren't they down... Well, Beating down doors? Yes, we, we have. I was down at Beaver Creek last week, which was, was a tremendous event, oh, you did. of course. Okay. Fresh Metal Summit. Uh, I've left the team down there to take care of what's going on at Beaver, or the teams, uh, and they're doing a great job. But it was good to get down to Beaver Creek, good get good to get out of uh, Canada and Vancouver for a change and um, and see what was going on. Good to see, you, you know, lots of very good companies. I think our Wiesla Silver was one of the standout stories. Uh, Charles Funk, who works with us, his Helio Star was a great story there as well. Um, but you, you know, really strong interest. Uh, I think this summer has been a very quiet summer, uh, particularly for precious metal stocks, but all mining stocks. Uh, so we've we've burst out of the blocks. I think sort of you know Beaver Creek's the first big conference of the the the, the uh, fall season, and uh, you know very strong interest there. And we've seen a good solid rally in most companies over the past couple of weeks. So it's looking like a very good setup uh, for the back half of this year. Were you getting nervous because it was like that that summer lull happened, it, and it happens every year, but it's usually just mm. August because people go on holiday. This year it seemed to go on a little bit longer, and obviously precious metals have been sort of suffering since what September last year. Were you a bit nervous about whether it was going to come back? Well, look, a little bit, a little bit. I've become mates with Peter Brown, and, of course, Peter's one of the great observers of the market and the doyen of stockbroking here in Canada. Uh, and he observes that, you know, seven of ten, every ten years, uh, you have a very strong rally out of, out of the summer doldrums. The summer doldrums are typically always there, but come September, very strong rally. October, you, you know, it's the crash month, so the first couple of months of October can be a little bit slow again. Uh, and then, you know, if there is no crash in those first couple of weeks of October, things roll back to life. Well, we've seen a very strong, uh, you know, jump in markets. Um, we haven't seen that in precious metals prices, probably the most exciting thing that we've seen here in recent times. That was the copper price, nickel price, and then particularly the uranium price really roaring back to life. So I feel like we, you know, we were a little bit nervous. Uh, capital had dried up over summer, but I think everyone was exhausted after a, a fairly... Uh, sort of tough 12 months with COVID uh, and and rallies in in prices, you know, commodities and equities over the back half of last year that people wanted a bit of a break over summer. So my observation is that the fund managers have all come back behind their desks and have started buying in a big way. And you see that reflected in some of, you know, our portfolio of stocks, Visa Silver's roaring to life. ISO Energy's had a spectacular run in the last uh, the last week. Uh, and, um, you know, it looks like a very good setup for a, a, an excellent back half of the year. Who thought people could get tired of making money? But the fund managers clearly, clearly, clearly did. Um, I th- yeah, that's, that's kind of quite a good assessment, actually. So look, looking at uranium, obviously, that's the big hot topic of the past three weeks or so. The spot physical uranium charts just got out of the gate fast and hard and don't look like slowing down anytime soon. So ISO Energy, main beneficiary of that. 
all uranium companies are beneficiary of that. What's going to happen in that space? Has it got too hot and heavy and frothy too quickly? Well, of course, this is, you know, we've seen this coming for some time. We knew with the closure of um, MacArthur River, then Cigar Lake, and then, of course, the Kazakhs reducing their production by 30%, uh, a lot of product was taken out of the market. You had Cameco, of course, the second biggest miner of uranium in the world, buying in the spot market to feed their long-term contracts. Um, I think, you know, that that happened about two, two and a half years ago. It's taken us a lot longer than we expected to work through uh, the material that's been out there, but we're evidently through that. And then, of course, along comes Sprott, buys Denison's um, UPC out of out of Denison, uh, creates the Spot Uranium Trust, SPUT, uh, delightfully named, uh, or uh, the delightful ticker there. They've started buying, and we knew precisely the day they were going to start buying, which was three Monday three weeks ago. Uh, and you see what's happened to the spot price. It's risen from $30. I think we're at about $46 today. Uh, extraordinary uh, jump in price. So to my mind, that's the straw that broke the camel's back. We knew it was coming and then uh, it just needed that serious buying. Now, we understand they've raised another $900 million to, to buy a product out of that market. So we're going to see, I, I think what we'll see is um, spot price will continue to rise strongly uh, over the coming months. And then it becomes a question of do those, you know, complacent purchasing managers in the, in the utilities, particularly in the US, that have been sitting there mopping up all the spot product that they can get and not going out and writing long-term term contracts, do they panic? Uh, and, of course, we saw this last time in 2006, seven. Spot price went from $9 to $144. I think here, you know, very good chance that when they see the price roar through $60 here in a week or two, that they will panic and start writing long-term contracts. We could well see $200 uh, uranium, Matt. And, um, you know, against that backdrop, you've seen ISO rise from $2 a week ago to I think we're at $6 something today. Um, now, that's a little bit of a, a select story there in that it's the only junior company drilling a high-grade uranium deposit as we speak, and they've got results about to come. But I think everything in the sector could go up, you know, multiples a little bit like we saw in 2007. So I'm I'm super, super bullish on that. How long will that last? I think, you know, the, the demand drivers are there for a long-term rally in uranium prices. Of course, you'll see over, over the next 12 to 24 months more product come into the market as some of these mines open up, but the demand's there now. Um, so I, I, you know, and you've taken a huge amount of product out of the market with you, you know, uh, spot uranium uh, trust, uh, yellow cake in London, of course. So the scene set for a tremendous rally in uranium. I'm, I'm very bullish. I wouldn't be surprised if we see, you know, something like ISO Energy at twenty dollars, next gen potentially at twenty dollars or more as well. Um, so it's 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 going to be some exciting times ahead for uranium. Where's this two hundred dollar narrative come from? We're seeing it everywhere. I mean, who's who's done the numbers on that? Look, I think that that's always just a, a real thumb suck. Um, you, you know, people are saying. Of course, we saw that rally in the the two thousands from nine dollars to one hundred and forty four dollars. So the metal price was up fifteen times. Um, I, I guess people are thinking, well, the lows were about sixteen dollars a pound. Where can it go? 15 times that, somewhere north of $200 a pound. Um, so, you know, we're a chance of getting there. I think, of, of course, the marginal costs of production here, for, well, sorry, the incentive price, I should say, for new production is really, apart from next-gen's Arrow Energy, uh, sorry, Arrow Deposit, 
Um, most of the production around the world needs about 60 or $70 a pound. So we've got to see prices get beyond that before we see real production come back on stream or new production come on stream. So it's got to be somewhere north of that, I think. Right. Okay. Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens there because I think there are obviously some of the conversations we've had and people are questioning what some of the uranium developers are saying in terms of what they're able to produce. Because you, you obviously look at the trade techs of this world and um, UECs, you know, they don't necessarily take verbatim what the company's saying as fact, and they're suggesting there'll be a lot less production. So I think that could obviously help drive the price, which is good, because there'll probably be a lot less actual producible pounds than perhaps are being stated. So it would interesting to see how this thing plays out over the next 12 months uh, when term contracts are being signed and at what levels and with whom. Because um, I think, you know, again, talking about producing and producing, two different things, right? Absolutely. Right. Shall we, shall we, shall we go on to nickel? Nine, we got up to 9.35 yesterday. Uh, not settled back down around nine bucks, I think. I mean, that the prices are flying. Uh, nickel company, good nickel companies are the benefit, being beneficiary of that. Um, where are you seeing this thing going? Some saying ten bucks by Q1. Look, you could certainly see that. I, I can tell you that, you know, here at Inventor, we've now got seven listed companies. I've, I think we've got fourteen companies in total, three of which we're taking public at the moment. One of those is a nickel uh, nickel sulfide company. Uh, one is a copper business. Uh, we've spent the last six months scouring the globe for decent copper and nickel projects that are available to develop. There's nothing out there. I can tell you it's extraordinary. The cupboard's bare, of course. We've suffered underinvestment as a sector in the last 10 years. Um, not only have we done that, but we've laid off a lot of people and we haven't trained anyone new much to come through. So when prices rise, it's going to take two or three years before we can bring on the people, train people up to help us build these things. So, you know, there's going to be a massive lag in production, I think, for, for decent projects. Uh, and in on the nickel front, it's extraordinary. Of course, you see Noront uh, is subject to a bidding war between FMG and BHP for a relatively modest project, you know, and a, a half a billion dollar market cap company. So that's an extraordinary indicator. And plant as well. It, 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 exactly. Good, good luck with the infrastructure bill. <laughs> it's going it's to be great. But, well, well that, that's right. So um, I, I really think that, you know, we could see massive breakout in nickel price. And, of course, the thing, the thing that's always kept a cap on those, those prices has been the pig nickel production out of Indonesia into China. Now, we're not going to see that this time because that production is great for stainless steel, can't readily, easily uh, go into to batteries. And, of course, you know, the planet, if we want to meet our Paris climate goals by 2040, we need to see, a you know, the electrification of the world needs to be such that we need to see a 19 times increase in the production of nickel today. Where is that going to come from? I wouldn't, you know, this is, Robert Friedland talks about this, the, the revenge of the miners is coming. Of course, you've got guys like Saudi Aramco out there, two and a half trillion dollar company. Matt, the combined market capitalisation of the entire mining industry and exploration industry today is less than $2 trillion. So that's, you know, to, to put that in context, uh, you've got um, Apple, $3 trillion company, uh, Saudi Aramco, $2.5 trillion company. So those two companies alone are significantly, worth significantly more than our entire sector that's about to be called on to supply metals to the world for the electrification and decarbonisation of the world. People are going to have to pay up if we're serious about this. And, you know, a 19 times uh, 
demand increase for one metal, for nickel alone, that's going to have massive implications. I think that, you know, we could see metal prices 10 times where they are in 10 years. Uh, so, you know, this sector is an extraordinary sector to invest in right now. This boom that's coming is going to be much, much bigger than the last one, you know, urbanisation of China, of course, a massive demand driver there. And that saw the five-fold increase in things like copper prices, nickel prices. I think we're going to see, you know, many times that this this time around because the demand driver is so much bigger. It's interesting what you say, though. Like, and I, I put, I had a little dig there at Wailu and, and, and BHP bidding more, you know, in the, for, for some swamp land. But, you know, it's... It, that is where BHP, who are now, you know, got a, got a whole office in Toronto dedicated towards nickel. Yet, you, you know, that they've moved there recently. It shows you how few options they have elsewhere to get large multi-cycle, it's a large-scale multi-cycle projects into the portfolio. One, nickel's important to them because they've, they've said it, as is copper, as is potash. But... Finding projects of that scale is hard. They pick this up for a song. It may not seem like it right now, but they they must believe that the infrastructure cost that they're going to have to, uh, you know, lay lay out for you know I don't know where's the nearest port seven seven hundred kilometers away something 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 insane they're gonna they're gonna have to lay roads transport systems all sorts of things to get this product you know to where they need it it's it's a tough one but that's it shows intent based on their belief as to what is going to happen to the to, to the prices of these of these um, commodities nickel uh, and and copper alike so you know slight dig but um, it's it, it, it's it's coming. It's it's coming. It's uh, the, the prices will come. I'm, I'm sure of. It. I think you're right. Um, can I just talk about silver for a bit, and then I kind of want to come back to some of the things that you said because obviously you've got, you've got silver in the portfolio um, and 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 copper too. So, what are you seeing with silver market? Because precious metals been off. You know, gold's been off. Silver's been off for a while. Um, people are looking at many other things. Um, are people going to come back? Will prices recover? But, do you need them to recover? Yeah, good, good, good question. I, I, you know, I'm relatively new to to the silver market and, and getting up the curve here pretty quickly, uh, with the help of a few friends. I very privileged uh, to to now have become friends with Eric Sprott. So I was on a fishing trip with Eric uh, two weeks ago before our trip to Beaver Creek, and and you know, Eric Eric taught me a hell of a lot sitting on a boat with him for a day about the silver market. So I, I'm uh, I'm much you know, much better informed at the moment. Um, of course, we've got Visa Silver, so we're invested there, and Visa Silver's been doing a tremendous job um, and trading counter to the market. We've got a great discovery there. Um, you know, to me, silver sits right at the heart of, again, the electrification of the planet. It's, it's you know, in solder, it's in solar panels, uh, it's in everything that we, we do. So it's, you know, again, a true battery and electrification metal, if you like. Um, so the demand drivers there, again, very, very strong. A lot of silver production is a byproduct. Of course, KGHM, surprisingly, is the, the world's biggest silver producer, producing about 50 million ounces of silver a year. Um, so that's a, a little bit of a strange setup and, and, and surprise to find that. So you've always got those challenges. But again, a, a, around co-production from, from other, you know, byproduct production. Uh, which can impact things. However, you know, again, underexplored for. Mexico is the world's biggest silver producer. No one's been doing a hell of a lot of exploration there. We're probably largely on our own, Silvercrest and us. We've got 10 rigs at Vizsla turning at the moment, so lots of good news coming there. But the, the important thing that Eric explained to me is that it's the most manipulated trade on the planet 
Uh, and we've seen that recently. You know, JP Morgan got slapped with a, a $900 million fine by the US regulators for uh, manipulating that trade. Um, the uh, and, and, you know, on that COMEX trade, there's a hell of a lot more companies, a lot more banks that do uh, trade there. You'll see, Eric explained to me that you see um, uh, on in Asia on a, on a Monday morning, Sunday night here in, in North America, you know, spot prices in silver will rise and then the COMEX comes on and it gets slapped down massively with a hell of a lot of short selling. So, you know, that manipulated trade still goes on. He thinks with that fine of JP Morgan, nearly a billion dollars, that those guys are now scared and on notice. Uh, and so that will flush out that COMEX trade over the next 12 months. And when it does, a little bit like the uranium market, we could see really explosive growth. He's, he's thinking that silver will go through $100 uh, an ounce. Um, I don't know about that, but, you know, I'd be happy with $50 an ounce. And, of course, there's precedent for this. That's happened before a couple of times we've seen uh, back in the early 80s and then uh, back in the, the, the mid to late 90s, silver, uh, sorry, early 2000s, silver price run through $50 and beyond. Um, of course, that was on a different base. Uh, we're starting at $24 an ounce here today. Uh, so could we see $100 uh, an ounce silver? Absolutely, I think. And again, it sits at that great macro theme that we've got of, of the electrification of the planet. So it's one of my, now one of my favourite, uh, I'm a late stage convert to silver, but it's one of my favourite metals, absolutely. It, it's, it's kind of interesting, you know, the JP Morgan fine, you know, doing, doing it at that scale seems, obviously, I'm, I'm glad the regulators have kind of stepped in, but, you know, do, do you think there's a kind of problem all through the industry in the way that equities are, Managed, manipulated, you know, shorted, etc. There's, there's some, as you say, there's some fu funny old uh, moves going on in the marketplace at the moment, by the, by the great and the good. Um, and I, you know, you've got to wonder if the regulators will step up the whole way through the food chain, or is it just, you know, the big boys doing big numbers? You, I, look, I think that that's just coming naturally. You know, we're seeing more and more of it all the time. Um, so that that will happen. Well, one interesting observation I think there that we have is that um, a bit of a corollary to that, but, but, you know, you've seen metal prices really rise very, very strongly, but you haven't seen junior equities rise quite as strongly to, to match that, that inflow of capital into the equities. Um, part of that, I think, of course, you know, my, my, my latest... Uh, and favourite observation about the sector is that, you know, not only is the market cap less than Apple and, and Saudi Aramco of our entire industry, but, you, you know, extraordinary news out of Rio Tinto there a couple of weeks ago, $12.4 billion profit, and they, they're giving that all back for the half, and they're giving all that back as a special dividend to investors. So, uh, and, of course, you know, next half, they're likely to do something similar. So, um, you know, they're potentially going to reward investors with a $20 billion dividend this year. That's never happened before. You know, that that's Rio Tinto, the world's second biggest miner, trading at a, probably a 12 times dividend yield. Never, ever in the history of the planet has that happened. Uh, so, you know, that will draw generalist eyeballs into the space, as we saw back in 2005 to 2010. So I, I think there's about to be a wall of money coming out of the US and Europe for the major mining companies. And typically what happens is it trickles down to the mid-tiers and then onto the, into the junior space over two or three years. So, you know, that, that boom hasn't kicked off in my view. We're in a bullish market, but that boom is coming over that sort of time frame for all of the sector. 
Uh, so, so watch out for that. And this is what, you know, all of those things, why I say that just about every mining company on the planet, doesn't matter who you are, will be a 10-bagger from here. Well, it's, 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 now, just, it's interesting that because, look, the, the, the big companies have been a beneficiary of high prices over the past 18 months. And, of course, they've got to give, they should give that back as dividends to their, their shareholders. But there's also this narrative, this, you know, green greenwashing of companies. They're, you know, the, the majors and some of the materials are dumping some of the less savoury stocks, they're, they're dumping coal, they're dumping oil and gas for green metals. This clean energy narrative that's going on is driving that. So it's this ESG narrative. You know, mining has long needed to tidy up its act, clean up its act, literally and figuratively. Uh, and it looks like they're trying to do that, being driven by the funds who are also jumping on board this ESG and, and green narrative too. So when you say the juniors will be the beneficiary of this, Juniors typically are big destroyers of wealth. They they have been historically, and they probably will be because it's you know it's it's a it's a tough ride. How how do you think the majors are going to engage with juniors? What's their expectations of the types of projects that will and won't get financed? Well, I, I think you know Noron is is a very very good example of what could potentially happen. You know, relatively modest company being you know gobbled up by by the big guys. I think that they're going to. You know, and of the majors, Rio Tinto has probably been the most engaged and successful on the exploration front. BHP largely doing nothing, um, you know, and not much success uh, from some of those majors. So they will be looking to to our our sector, the, the smaller end of the the market, for world class deposits. Um, to give you an example of how we're playing that, you know, Surge Copper, we took control of Surge Copper late last year, fantastic company. I'm taking the view, there. you know, there we've got about a billion tonnes at about 0.5%. Uh, we've got a high-grade core to it. It's in central British Columbia where we've got great First Nations support. Very importantly on that ESG front there, we've got... Um, low, uh, you know, very low carbon potential production because of the uh, hydroelectric schemes here in British Columbia that provide very low cost, uh, clean, green power. Um, but I'm taking the view that, you know, and this is sort of to jumble up a whole bunch of themes there, but you look at what's happening in South America at the moment, you know, every few years they go through sort of Marxist-based ructions and we're seeing that in Peru and to some extent in Chile. I think, you know, places like Canada, where you can control the ESG outcomes on projects more readily and you're under the microscope of serious regulators, that's where you should be building projects and focusing. Now, you know, if we see an extraordinary opportunity and we've found an extraordinary nickel opportunity in Central Africa, we'll go there. But, you know, my preference is to, to look at, you know, places like British Columbia, which I think will become the new Chile for copper over the next 10, 10 or why, so Why do you say you can control it more easily? Because it, Canada seems rife with stories about First Nations stepping in and just saying, no, either we don't want it or we want a lot more for you doing whatever it is that you want to do. Same in yes. South America, same in Australia. It just seems to be a, a new narrative where power has transferred over to these First Nations groups. Yeah, and that's that's. And, and by the way, I should I should add here, Craig, before you give the answer is, and I think rightly so, because absolutely okay. So I I agree entirely. Uh, you you know I was talking to Adam Lundine, uh, who who runs uh, some of the Lundine Group's um, uh, copper projects in in South America. He was talking about you know Lucas, his dad, 
flying down to Ecuador and sitting down with the government and saying to the the, 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 the president of the country, you, you know, this Mr. President, this is your metal. All we're here to do is help you get it out of the ground efficiently and create jobs. And that's the same for First Nations. You know, we have to engage more successfully, uh, you know, acknowledge the fact that but it, it, these are their sovereign nations, in essence, uh, and um, and so work closely with them. And you can see that we, you know, we're putting that principle in practice at Skeena. Uh, I think you know we're at the the, the real bleeding, uh, cutting edge of uh, First Nations engagement there with the Taltan. Walt Coles and the team at Skeena have done a tremendous job of engaging. So much so that you, you know we, we've done a few key things there. We've handed back. Uh, ground to them and to the province that they say will never be developed because they're sacred to, to to the First Nation there. So we've done that. But, you know, we've now got ourselves in a position where the Taltan are investing into, into Skeena, into the company. So they've become our true partners and investors in the company, not just the project. So I, I think that's the future. That's the, the, you know, the way we need to head. Um, and everyone needs to benefit from these projects. So you've got to find that, that right way, that right approach. Sure, that's going to cost us a bit more, um, but not in the long run because it shortens up your timeframes to development, uh, provides jobs for everyone and, and social infrastructure and opportunity. Um, so there, there, you know, clearly there is a better way of doing it, and that you know we have to get better at that as an industry. Don't worry too much about any economic costs that you perceive that may happen from giving some of your project or partnering with uh, the, the true traditional owners of these 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 metals in the ground, because these metal prices, when they take off, are going to cancel out any any of those issues over the next few years. Yeah, I mean, well said. Um, it's not. Short-term economics should not matter because it's a case of if you want to get, if you want this thing to move ahead, you be, you got to pay up. You, you will have to pay up, or you'll be sitting there for a long time. And that's going to cost you more in the in the in the long run. Uh, well said. Um, there is also a conversation that we've been having where some fund managers are just slightly annoyed by this. ESG green initiative because it's just a tick box exercise. They've said. We've converted 50% of uh, our funds to be ESG uh, funds. Uh, no apparent reason. It's a textbook exercise. Could not care less. Things haven't changed. Oh, look, I, I think, you know, you're always going to get some actors that will, will sort of, uh, you, you know, treat these things as tick box exercises. Uh, I, I think that, you know, the world expects more of us. And if we are to get our permits in place and get projects built, you, you've got to follow these, these, these principles and, uh, you, you know, at Goldbull, one of our companies, Cherie Leiden runs Goldbull. We work together at Rio Tinto. We bought a project off Newmont uh, last year. That's going very well. Um, you know, we were actually one of the lower bidders, lowest price bidders on the project, but they they very much appreciated our commitment to those pr principles. You know, we when we present to Newmont about the project, we have 14 slides covering all of the ESG. We even, Matt, we have a, a slide on diversity in there, you, you know. So we're speaking the major's language. Um, and uh, and so, you know, we become a preferential partner for those sorts of guys. Walt's done the same there at Skeener, of course, you know, to buy SK Creek and snip off Barrick. Um, you know, Walt's taken that from a $20 million market cap to a billion-dollar company today by living by those principles and, and, and working with the Taltan. So you can pay lip service to it and get not far, or you can actually live the principles and, uh, and do very well. 
Right, just conscious of time. I know you've got to go off somewhere. Um, is you've got you've got to, you said a couple of projects that are going to become to market soon. Is that right? Couple of pro- yeah, couple of companies coming to market soon. We've got a nickel nickel, nickel. business. We've bought a bunch of uh, assets in Guyana. Uh, very good gold projects uh, that will be called Golden Shield. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another one there that I'm uh, I'm uh, that escapes me at the moment. We're also looking at a couple of other opportunities in. Uh, carbon capture and storage space and, and carbon offset space as well. So lots going on in the background. Okay. What's the common theme? Just remind us about Inventor Capital. The common theme with all of these companies is fundamentally strong ass- assets under, under on the ground. That's the number one for you. That, that That's key. Absolutely key. In good jurisdictions, again, where you know, um, we can control those ESG-type outcomes, um, you know, projects that you can fund, and and probably my biggest challenge at the moment with you know so much going on, so many companies is people finding good people, experienced people, hungry people. So you know what I'm finding is that we have to train our own new new breed of young dynamic CEOs to lead these companies and organisations, and then that you know their enthusiasm will cascade through the business. So that's probably our biggest challenge. Also finding quality projects. You know we've been scouring the earth for copper as well and. There, there ain't many good copper projects out there today, you know. I'd agree. Well, look, um, Craig, appreciate your time today. Come on and um, talk to us whenever those projects are look like they're getting off the ground or, or coming to market. You can come and tell us all about it. Tell our tell our investors all about it. Um, and best of luck with the with the current uh, portfolio. Thanks for your time. On you, Matt. Thanks. Always a pleasure. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast? or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.